Good morning, everybody, and <clears throat> welcome to Strategy Cafe, your shot of leadership inspiration from Olympic Strategy. It's a huge pleasure to be back. Um, I'm delighted to see so many people on the morning, this morning's cafe. Um, in a moment, I'm going to be introducing Simon, and we'll be getting started. The interview is going to be wrapped up by around nine. Um, but if you want to stay on for questions, we're going to be here um, until just past the hour. Um, and um, Simon has been very generous and agreed to stay on and, and tackle any questions. So if you just take a moment to um, check on your GoToWebinar panel, you should be able to see uh, an area where you can submit questions during the discussion. So if you put them in there, uh, we'll keep an eye on them. We'll try and field some during the discussion this morning. Um, and hopefully any that we miss during the conversation we'll pick up you know, just at the top of the hour. So I hope you enjoy this morning's discussion about all things angel investing and um, about how the risk takers need to reignite the uh, economy. Uh, so the agenda for today, quick introduction, um, then uh, we'll be meeting Simon for discussion, questions at summary at the top of the hour, and then a quick note about what's coming next, uh, and, then, and then back to your day. Simon, um, really delighted to have you on the cafe this morning. Um, I am um, really looking forward to our discussion today. Um, but maybe this is a good uh, slide to get you going. Maybe uh, an opportunity just to introduce yourself to everybody. Tell us a little bit about you and about a bit about angel investing. Great, Nick. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to to talk this morning. Uh, I'll try and make it interesting. So, uh, I am, as you say, a risk taker. Uh, I've invested in 50 businesses over the last 10 years, uh, almost all in the UK, mainly in technology and life sciences. Um, and a lot of my companies have been softwares, uh, software companies. Of those 50, uh, nine have exited, mainly been sold to large American corporates. Uh, seven have failed and disappeared for various reasons. And I have 32 left in the portfolio. Some of those companies are now what we would call scale-ups. So they've gone from the startup phase right the way through to, uh, to scale-up. And there are some of them are quite sizable businesses now and have created uh, a significant number of jobs. So I suppose, you know, why did I get into this in the first place? Well, both my parents were entrepreneurs. They both ran their own businesses. You know, my mum always used to say, there's no such thing as I can't. And for me, that's kind of what defines an entrepreneur. You know, entrepreneurs try and find ways around things. They try to find ways to do things rather than not do things. Um, so that's an important part of entrepreneurialism for me. So a quick bit of background, really. You've got some of the points on this slide, but uh, essentially what I do these days is I'm chair of Cambridge Angels. So I'm very much plugged into the uh, Cambridge ecosystem. We can talk a bit about that. I'm also on the board of the Innovation Factory in Manchester, which is the university's spin-out uh, board with the aim of actually spinning out more intellectual IP out of the university in through commercialization, in through companies. Um, and um, I, I'm a very active promoter of the digital economy. Maybe we'll talk about that later, but clearly COVID has had significant, uh, mainly negative impacts on the economy. But one of the things that we've seen from a very positive point of view is it's accelerated the digitization of many sectors of the economy, particularly healthcare, which of course we're all familiar with, but also education. Uh, and of course, we've seen a huge increase in e-commerce. Um, so that's yeah. a, a quick a quick intro, Nick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, we definitely must get back to that because um, I think all of us are aware that the acceleration of digitization in the economy is a, has been a huge feature 
uh, of the pandemic and um, you know has left the economy in a completely different state I think which I think all of us need to just take into account and really start to think about but let's I mean one of the things I wanted to do just to get started with is really take you back to the, uh, to the start of it all and when we were chatting about this um, you were talking to me and we, I think we knew each other around around we probably met each other around the time um and um i i remember you starting as an, an investor in view ranger you know which i've had probably since you introduced it to me and have completely loved so you should tell everyone a little bit about that um and then also i think there's another one you mentioned called growth engineering so these were maybe twenty five thousand pounds investments each and maybe that's a great sort of jump off point for you know a brief overview of the specifics of angel investing so what what do you actually do as an angel investor and maybe there's a good starting point. Okay, so those two companies are great because they're they're quite different. So View Rangers, in View Rangers' case, I was introduced to two guys, and it was a sort of the old Microsoft thing. Uh, can you come and meet these two guys in Cambridge, you know, in their garage because they know a lot about tech, but they don't really know much about business? Can you go yeah. and help them? So I went and had coffee with them over an hour, and they said, "Well, look, we, you know, these are the problems we've got." And I said, "Well, I can help you with these." So can you? Right. Okay. So ten years later. Uh, I've been helping them. I've been on the board all that time, and we we grew the business from literally those two people to 20 plus people. The business ultimately was sold to a company called Outdoor Active in southern Germany, actually, um, and it's now the best performing business in their portfolio of European companies. What we learned about that was it's interesting. When we started, it was 2009. It was just two years after um, the iPhone had been launched. Remember, in 2007, the iPhone was launched. Yeah. And, and at that stage, um, a software tool to allow you to walk, cycle, do outdoor activities from your mobile phone and track where you've been was 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 quite advanced. And at that stage, we had to decide which operating systems to put the put the software on. You know, was it going to be was it going to be BlackBerry? Do you remember BlackBerry? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, actually, thankfully, we chose Apple and Android. And of course, that was the right decision. We didn't know that at the time. Um, and so that company's grown and, and it moved on later to a subscription model. Um, and the subscription model actually was what defined the profitability of the company and made it a, a big success. So, uh, and so, so as an exit, you know, my 25,000 pounds, um, I did make some subsequent investments, um, turned into a, a significant exit. Growth engineering has been very different um, because they've tried to do it after taking initial capital in about the same time, 2009. Um, the founder, um, a lady called Juliet Denny, has not actually taken any external capital at all, other than a bit of debt, which is unusual for a growth company at that stage. Um, and uh, funny enough, we had a call yesterday, actually, and uh, you know, she's now a sort of three million pound business, growing very quickly, impacted badly by COVID, but recovered incredibly quickly due to decisive yeah. action on their part. Um, and um, so, a very different journey from. Uh, from View Ranger, so it just shows actually how these companies from the kind of same start can end up in very different uh, journeys. I, I um, have really enjoyed View Ranger as an app, as a as a customer. Um, you know, being a being a runner and a walker um, to actually be able to map onto uh, you know a, um, a fine scale ordnance survey on the iPhone has been incredible and there's map routes and find routes and um, to, to track it around. I've taken it all the way over Cumbria um, and it's been a real good companion over the years. And I, I know also it's been a roller coaster ride. And so one of the things um, I was interested just to chat about is um, 
the the leadership side of um, being an angel investor. So the one side of it is being properly at risk, which I think you know um, angels are are very much you know the initial risk takers along with their co-entrepreneurs. But also there's a leadership aspect to it, isn't there? I think you know you describe yourself as an active investor. Is that right? Yeah. So there's this uh, very good concept of. Um, understanding what it is to be an active investor and what it is to be a passive investor. So yeah. an active investor will be somebody that rolls their sleeves up and actually gets involved with the founders and helps uh, run the company. But usually that will be in some form of non-executive capacity. So normally be a non-executive director or possibly a board observer where you're essentially attending all board meetings, but you're not, you don't actually have the fiduciary duties of being an NED. Um, Sometimes there will be a group of five or six investors and one of those individuals will be that board observer or NED and the others will be passive relying on that one person to essentially look after their interest and that usually works well because you usually want somebody who's got domain expertise. So I don't have domain expertise in life sciences and digital healthcare, I can apply some of the technology techniques but if it's a life sciences company I'm investing in, I'm going to definitely rely on somebody who has got that expertise. In your perspective, you know, how just how important is the the leadership um, of the business? And, you know, what are the typical issues, um, you know, um, talking in generalities rather than any specifics, what are the particular issues that, you know, that come up? And what levers do you have as an investor, you know, to tackle them? So it's a great question, Nick, because leadership is the absolute key um, attribute that I'm looking to invest in. So if I think about, you know, people say to me, well, what, how do you make your investment decision? I'm looking for an outstanding team. Uh, they've got to have something that's differentiated in terms of technology. Ideally, they have some IP. Uh, yeah. And lastly, it needs to be a big market. You know, that, that was actually what was attractive about ViewRanger was putting that software on, uh, on, a, on phones that could be sold all over the world meant that it was a big market. So um, uh, those are the four things I look for. And actually, if the leadership isn't right at the beginning, then I won't make the investment. Because I've got to believe that the one, two, three founders that set up the company can yeah. actually scale this business to something sizable, are capable of building a team of, a, say, 150 people. That's what you have to believe at the, at the start. Now, of course, it doesn't always go like that. Uh, and then, of course, you know, some some leaders respond well to feedback and some don't. And you over the first two or three years, you know whether they're actually going to respond well to feedback, uh, both positive and negative. So that experience of how they're going to respond is something that you get just a little bit down the track, I guess, as you know, you get into it and the challenges come up, you know, and there's um, you, know, you get a sense of whether there's an open an open dialogue, an open discussion. And um you know your team are your team are in listening mode and are open to and flexible whether or whether they're really just gonna um sort of dig their heels in or be difficult in a different way um and uh, so what are the levers how do you how do you tackle that if you find you're in a position where you know you're at risk i mean everyone's at risk right but uh, but you're also at risk and so it's meaningful engagement and um you know you feel in the end you do want to change what do you do yeah, so so uh, it, it can be incredibly difficult. Actually, removing the founders is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And too, yeah, and also having two founders, uh, which is the sort of optimal um, optimal team that venture capitalists like to invest in. If one falls out with the other, that's usually game over for the company. Really, it can be rescued, but it's not often done successfully. 
if you're trying to change the leadership team, then that's where the shareholder base is quite important. So if you can imagine you've got lots of disparate shareholder groups with all, all sorts of different interests, i.e. their interests are not aligned, then it yeah. can be incredibly difficult to, to make any change. So to, to make change, you actually need the shareholders to be aligned in changing the leadership team. And so that's really the critical thing is getting alignment around the investor group. And then uh, there's power in that. Really, there's power in the capital. And I guess uh, you have moral authority at that point. You could take uh, a tougher view and just refuse more cash. You've got to ultimately you've got to stop if you have agreement amongst the investor group. Yes, and there's a there's a point here which is probably important for for um, people who are not familiar with this to understand that it, as an angel investor, really you should be looking to think about the next sources of finance. And usually for early stage companies when they're not yet making profits, you've got to go to venture capitalists um, because they're the only people that are effectively taking institutional risk, or at least that's what they're meant to be doing. Yeah, and yeah. A venture capitalist will not invest in a company if it doesn't think the team's right. Yeah. So you get three, two, three, four years down the line as an angel and you find that the venture capitalist isn't actually going to, it meets the company, it says, I don't really like the team. You know, they might make all sorts of excuses as to why they're not investing, which probably won't be the team, but actually yeah. worked out it's the team. So that's important. Yeah. So interesting. Just put these slides back up momentarily, and um, um, I um, just wanted to pick up on, you know, this. Uh, the I think it's around the time of the exit of SwiftKey uh, that we chatted about, and uh, this slide has got a great kind of collection of. Um, it sort of shows the breadth and depth of your portfolio. Um, but I know in 2017 you won the Entrepreneur and Investment uh, Investor of the Year award. So uh, we were chatting about this, and I guess at that point you sort of really found your length. Uh, had a good sense how to get it right. And I think we, we were just discussing, you know, the team, the importance of the team. The two things that you talked about were, you know, um, you know, um, having some intellectual property and just the fundamental importance of the underlying technology. So tell us, tell us about how you, how you assess that um, as an investor. Yeah, so so this looks uh, looks like there's a lot of logos on this slide, doesn't it? That's very very busy slide, but I, I think it does demonstrate the the, the fact that the quite there are quite a wide variety of companies that I'm invested in, and and what's the theme that's uh, that's pulling through all these companies is really the application of, as you said, Nick, new technologies into existing sectors. So take Recipe, which is run by uh, by two women in London. Uh, that is essentially applying artificial intelligence to to women's fashion. But I think to answer your question, uh, around SwiftKey is a good example because it exited to Microsoft in 2015. And that's only five years ago. But at that yeah. point, artificial intelligence had been around since I think 1956. So it's not a new term. But suddenly in 2015, the world discovered artificial intelligence. And there were three deals that were announced that year. One of them was SwiftKey. Another was DeepMinds, which many people will know, which was sold to Google. And it was at that point there was a kind of awakening by certainly in the UK, but actually also elsewhere in the world, uh, that artificial intelligence was a tool that could be used by a myriad of different sectors. And, uh, yeah. and of course, ever since, every single pitch deck I see from any company anywhere has got artificial intelligence in it somewhere. <laughs> And is it? And is it? And is it actually artificial intelligence, or is it just some, you know, uh, clever 
you know, clever, clever um, software, but not actually intelligent software. How often, how often do you see actual intelligent software in these uh, when you get underneath the skin of it? Well, so uh, most of the time you don't. Uh, obviously, if you're going to apply artificial intelligence techniques, you first of all need a big data set. And um, many companies do not have access to a big data set. Yeah. Uh, if we think about the healthcare example, the NHS has a fantastic opportunity because it has national data. It has a fantastic opportunity to use artificial intelligence. But of course, yeah. it's got to do it. It's got to do it in a in a regulatory compliant way. It's possible. It's all got to be anonymized. But the aggregated data, fantastically valuable, uh, and of course, could be sold all over the world. But that's probably a way away from their uh, focus at the moment. So you make an assessment of the technology. Um, uh, you know, you get a kind of a, a good feel for the team. Uh, you want to make sure that there's some protectable intellectual property in there. Uh, and then, and then you know, you make a judgment about whether to whether to invest or not. And then, you know, what's your typical experience now? So I know you've had a few exits now, Simon. So what's your typical experience of how long it takes between that initial investment and and getting some form of exit? So I generally reckon now that um, uh, it takes ten to fifteen years to build a serious business. And interestingly, most pitches say exit plans question, we're going to exit in three to five years. Um, It's very, very rare for that to happen. And in fact, you probably wouldn't want that to happen because you can't build a serious business in in that time. You can build a what I call a technology platform uh, without any revenue. uh, And you can sell a technology platform in that time period. And it, it has happened. It has happened to me. There's one company on here, Vocal IQ was sold uh, to uh, to Apple. We weren't allowed to say it was sold to Apple, but everybody knows it was sold to Apple. Right. Right. Um, and, and that was a technology. They essentially wanted uh, their voice recognition technology, and they wanted a platform in Cambridge. In fact, they asked them to move to Cupertino, and the guy said, no, we prefer to stay in Cambridge. So they said, all right, stay in Cambridge. We'll set that up as our satellite in Cambridge. So, so that's an example of when it can happen on a much shorter time frame. Um, Usually my my exits are sort of seven, seven-ish years, seven to ten years. Um, there was a company that was acquired in Cambridge last uh, last year again by uh, Apple, where the technology actually came out of the University of East Anglia. Uh, the company was based in Cambridge by that stage. People thought it was a Cambridge company, and that's where the IP had come from, but it actually came from the University of East Anglia. Um, yeah. So. I wonder if that surprises people. Um, uh, we talked about patient capital, and actually, you know, as an angel, you need to be pretty patient. If you're waiting at least seven years, and it could be, you know, ten to fifteen years to build a significant company, as you say, you know, that's a long period of time to be investing at very high risk, isn't it? And um, yeah, no, I wonder how many people realise it takes that long, and that that's sort of reasonable expectation. Um, well, I, I don't think people do, and uh, and I and I think the mistake that is very easy to make. It's very tempting to sell your shares too early, and uh, you know you've done all the hard work, and the company's really starting to make progress, and it's like the old hockey stick. You know, the real value starts to happen quite quite late, uh, and that's, so you've got to hold the shares for long enough, and until either there is an exit or 
sometimes there won't be an exit because the company is better placed just simply growing uh, yeah. and therefore you need to find some other means which could be an IPO on the on the stock market but the UK's experience of um, taking um, new companies into technology on the on the stock market is not that good many companies yeah. go directly to Nasdaq especially in in, in healthcare they will yeah. go straight to Nasdaq but they need a certain size they need to be a sort of billion dollars market cap in order to be um, to be meaningful on Nasdaq yeah. Um, so don't sell too early. Don't sell too early. So um, uh, everybody, uh, I'm interviewing uh, Simon Thorpe, um, who's a really um, experienced angel investor this morning on Strategy Cafe. And uh, we're just going to move on, I think, and um, talk about the economy um, and how the scene has changed over the years. I think a good segue into that is to talk about models. Um, so we chatted a little bit about how you make your initial assessment around the team, you know, the underlying technology, uh, and whether there's any sort of defendable IP. And that doesn't really, you know, cover, you know, the commercial model that the business is going to uh, be successful with. Um, so I'm sort of curious um, about, um, you know, how many times your investees have changed their business model before they worked out, you know, the right way um, of doing it. Um, and maybe it's a good conversation just to have more generally, you know, about, um, you know, um, once you've worked out that the model isn't right, how quickly to change it, and then just what's going on at the moment, you know, what are the implications of the last nine months in the global economy and the digitization you referred to earlier and, you know, shifting model, what are you seeing out there? Patrick, you could just talk about business model for a little bit and then let's just get into discussing COVID and Brexit and climate change and all the things that are happening right now and how the scene has changed for you. <laughs> We're not going to do justice to any of those subjects in the remaining time, but in terms of in terms of business model, there's an old, there's an old joke. I remember seeing somebody put up a slide at the beginning of their presentation and they, they put up the alphabet A to Z and they said, We're at M so far and that's how many times we've pivoted the business model already. <laughs> Was so, M successful? <laughs> I, I don't know. This was a few years ago, so I don't know the particular example. But the point of that was that um, successful companies do often pivot their business model uh, a number of yeah. times. <clears throat> but actually, a full pivot uh, is relatively rare. Most companies are iterating. It's a bit like sprints in technology. You're, you're continually iterating until you get it right. And um, uh, I think what's happened in this in this pandemic is is many companies had to rework their operating model online so you know some of my companies could not go to the us probably couldn't travel there they couldn't go and see their customers uh and they certainly couldn't go and meet new potential customers because new customers wouldn't see them so yeah. they had to work out what their online operating model would be and of course some companies were really well placed because they were already doing that um, but they had to beef up what they were doing. Others weren't doing it at all. They had to. They had to essentially create their online model. So that that's been. That's why I go go back to the theme of digitization. You know, businesses have had to accelerate the digitization of their model very very quickly. And yeah. the best companies have done that really quickly. Um, yeah. They've also worked out how to get everybody to work from home effectively. You know, some companies were doing that anyway. Um, yeah. if, you, if you had a bank of software engineers, they were very happy doing that. But if you've got yeah. a very strong commercial sales team, they're not so happy. Yeah, yeah, it's been, I mean, across our client base, it's been a very mixed experience. I guess um, probably more than a third of team members have had to end up coming back in and working together because that's just how it works. 
uh, more, more than half are, are working from home, you know, and working from home really successfully. And it's surprising how quickly that was achieved across the economy, really. Uh, really surprising. But, uh, you know, I think we've, the pandemic probably arrived at about the time when the UK economy was ready to work from home. So that probably really helped because there were some great tools out there uh, for that. Yeah, yeah there's uh, an important point here, though, that some of the, you know, in, in the southeast where we broadly are, uh, and if you, especially if you look at a place like Cambridge, it is essentially a knowledge economy. So most people can work from home. But if yeah. you know, I'm looking, I'm doing quite a lot of work in Manchester at the moment, and it is a disaster there. Because because these cities, most of the jobs are not like that. So their economy has suffered really badly. Really? There's also an angle around women as well, because by and large, COVID has not been good for women. But one aspect of it that has been is it's made working from working flexibly and working from home much, much more acceptable. And that has been good for women. And why has it not been good for women? What's the what's behind that? Because by and large, um, if you've got uh, if you've got care situations in your family or friends, it's generally the women that are picking up the uh, picking up the ball and uh, and having to deal with that. And of course, and and also depends on the your children's age. But if you've got if you've got children, by and large, if the pressure falls on the women, not the men. Yeah, yeah. Um, so talk about the shift in the scene. So I know you're uh, enthusiastic about technology, enthusiastic about education, about healthcare as big shifts. Tell us a little bit about that. And uh, I know both of us are pretty optimistic about uh, the, you know, the upside ahead, having seen the worst downturn in 300 years. Um, uh, you'd think there's some return to the, to, to the mean would be expected, but um, but tell us tell us what your view is and how that's shared across the angel community. So I think actually the UK is quite well placed in terms of technology. So if we if we use artificial intelligence as an example, we are actually the third biggest investor through yeah. if you look at it through R and D behind uh, America and China. There's obviously a big uh, technology cold war going on between these two countries, which is interesting for the UK because it's somewhere in the somewhere in the middle. It's a little pawn in the middle and it's got to work out you know, if you take money from China, will you be able to take money from the US and so on? But the UK is quite well positioned. In fact, it invested as much in AI as the rest of Europe put together. Mm. You wouldn't really realize that from reading the press. But so we are we are quite good at this stuff. So there is a big opportunity for the UK if it thinks hard about the knowledge economy and it thinks about intellectual property, it thinks about how you classify value IP, et cetera. Um, so that's all good, but we need to we need to skill people effectively in technology. And that really starts at schools. And we're still very poor at schools in terms of teaching technolo technological and financial literacy. If we yeah. if we had some simple modules on those things, I think we'd make our children much more employable when they when they leave school or university and um you know education going online has obviously been a big feature um i'm curious also about healthcare i've seen i've seen a lot of innovation in healthcare a lot of ai actually in healthcare you know because it's got a you know particular application around um you know searching images and seeing things picking up from the data within images things that the human eye can't pick up even the experienced human eye so it's, yeah. it's, it seems to have some fabulous um, application within within healthcare. I'm curious as, what, as to what you're seeing, you know, what are the trends coming up in both of those spaces in education and healthcare? Well, just in healthcare, Curate is a, is a company that's doing exactly what you've just said, Nick. It, it's based out of Patworth in Cambridge, and it's uh, essentially applying ostrich intelligence to the analysis of lung disease. It's doing exactly what you said, because the computer can determine whether there's cancer or some other disease in the lung much better than a human can. Um, yeah. 
and so that's that's one of many examples um, that that you've seen. And the UK is actually pretty good at this stuff because you've got you know, you've got the big pharma companies like GSK and Astra, um, and you've then got lots of small companies that are developing very quickly. So if you look at Cambridge's economy, it's been growing at roughly seven percent per annum for the last ten years. And that's been and, and life sciences has been growing even faster than that, mainly because Astra moved from Manchester down to, to Cambridge. I've seen it also in the space of, um, of uh, design for, for example, for, um, you know, surgical implants, um, the ability to actually sort of, you know, make predictions about how things are going to look. And um, there's, there seems to be a lot of application within cosmetic. Um, surgery for this kind of thing as well. Just sort of the the visual aspect of AI seems to be really interesting. There's a slight variant on that in a company called Eagle Genomics, which is essentially um, using uh, it's an enterprise software company, but it's applying um, data around the microbiome, and yeah. it's essentially its customers are big pharma, but they are actually also the big personal care companies, Unilever, etc. Yeah. For exactly yeah. the reason you just suggested. So just coming up to the hour, we have got a couple of questions. Um, if anyone wants to ask Simon uh, or me questions, um, the, you know, go and have a look at the questionnaire on the panel and uh, fire, fire a few in. We've got some questions up there which we'll take in a minute. Um, so if you, want to, if you want to ask some questions and uh, let us have a good go at answering them, then, uh, then pile them in. I'm just curious, you know, you've been at this now for coming up for 12 years by the sounds of things. And um, I'm guessing the scene, you know, has shifted. So just give us an insight into how much it's changed and what you see as the, you know, the trends in angel investing at the moment. So the whole marketplace has become much more sophisticated, Nick. So when I first started, there weren't really many angel investors. There were a few. Cambridge uh, Angels was set up in 2000. That was very early. Most angel groups have wow. really only set up in the last 10 years. There have been, uh, probably people have heard, lots of what we call incubators, which incubate early stage companies, and then accelerators, which help accelerate their growth. Uh, you know, I think there's, I think there's probably 250 incubators and accelerators in the UK now, and yeah. probably virtually all of those have started in the last 10 years. I think there's a much greater recognition of the what I would call the Anglo-Saxon equity risk-taking culture. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is and it's very different from Germany. You know, Germany, as we know, is a big economy. It's the arguably the most important economy in Europe. But Germany doesn't really do equity risk finance. You know, it yeah. does bank debt. So yeah. their whole culture is completely different. Most of their innovation happens in big companies. Most of our innovation happens in small companies. So, so you see, there's a real difference. And in fact, the UK and the US invest more in intangible assets. Germany still invests more in tangible assets. You know, this yeah. is a very different makeup of the economy. Yeah, so they're very, they're still very sort of industrial uh, as a as a nation, even if that's you know high tech, very high tech, aren't they? And um, it is interesting. I'm hopeful uh, with that news because I think that the innovation um, curve, uh, from a sort of a, a national point of view, has always made the difference at each wave of change. You know, those countries that are at the leading edge of innovation have been the ones that have then taken the next wave. So, you know, that's hopeful news, really. And it's good to hear about the proliferation of angel groups across the UK. 
um, which, you know, no doubt the competition is sharpening up the whole industry, improving the knowledge and understanding and increasing the supply, which is much needed um, just in terms of our, like our headline, reigniting the economy, really need um, entrepreneurs to step up and angels to, to look after them over the next sort of five to 10 years to get us back on our feet after this disastrous year. Yeah, Nick, there is one other thing we should give a plug for. The, the, some of the UK government schemes do actually work very well. So Innovate UK's yeah. grant scheme and loan scheme, they're incredibly good. Uh, the R&D tax credits, most companies are familiar with them, but they've been incredibly part, uh, successful part of the UK system. Obviously, the tax release for, for early stage investing, EIS and CDIS. And actually, the Future Fund has been uh, a, you know, a remarkable initiative in a short space of time. But the Future Fund is really quite expensive finance. So you know right. you really you wouldn't do that unless you you know you really had to. But some companies have had to this year, and it saved them. So well, that's good. That's been good. Thank you very much. So I'm going to wrap up our conversation, um, and where you'll uh, take some questions. We've got a few questions coming. I'm just going to um, close with a, a quick um, pitch for the next session for everybody, and let you know what's coming up. And then um, we'll say goodbye to everyone who has to go now. And thank you all very much for coming today and listening. Um, so um, this webinar has been recorded um, it'll be available on our YouTube channel uh, a little bit later today and we'll send around a link to everybody so you can listen back in. Simon has given some wonderful information, shared some wonderful insight and experience for you all so um, certainly recommend picking up and listening back so you pick up the key points there. And next um, one uh, on the 28th of January is going to be with this uh, lovely gent Minter Minter Dial, um, who um, led Red Can and was senior leadership team at L'Oreal and was a groupie for the Grateful Dead um, and is a, um, you know, a high sports um, background in, in rugby and in tennis and in other things as well. A really lovely guy to talk about um, leadership with in a very, very different kind of space. So um, go online and you can register now to listen to me uh, discussing um, leadership from the point of view of a big cosmetics brand and other things with the, the, the lovely Minter Dial uh, in early January. So I look forward to seeing you all then after Christmas. And thank you all very much for coming today and hopefully we'll see you next time. So stay on, stay on for so questions for a little bit. Um, I'm just gonna drop the slides down again, um, Simon. So, um, uh, Roberto um, Rivero, hi there Roberto, I hope you can stay on and listen to the answers, um, um, has asked a couple of questions. So um, the first one, maybe we'll just, uh, I'll put it out there and you can give you a moment to think, but uh, I want, he's wondering whether there are any great books on um, um, being a new angel investor, so what, what should he read? Um, oh, here we go. The Invested Investor by Peter Cowley. Okay, great. The Invested Investor by Peter Cowley. I'll put that in chat. Hang on, just hold it up for a second. So it's yeah. uh, The Invested Investor uh, by Peter Cowley. So Peter is a Cambridge angel, in fact. He wrote this book the uh, year before last, I think. Uh, but it's got everything that you would want to know. If you want to become an angel, read that book. Great. Um, Michael Shapiro is listening on today. Oh, sorry, there's another one coming. And oh, if you, you want to, if you're a founder, no, I'm not doing very well. If, you, if you're yeah, founding it. a company, there's an entrepreneur you want to founder to founder, written again by Peter Cowley. So one for investors, one for uh, entrepreneurs. Founder to founder. Got it. 
There you go. Great. Thank you. Um, uh, Michael um, Shapiro is asking, how on earth do you juggle your time, given um, the involvement in all the businesses? Yeah, so it's a great question. I, I think the answer is you've got to be disciplined uh, and you've actually got to focus on those companies where you have got a, an active role, back to your active versus passive question. Um, so of my 30 plus companies that I've currently got in the portfolio, I'm active in five of them. So those five take priority. The other 25 plus, I'm essentially, essentially just trying to make sure I absorb information. So that's the answer. And then um, uh, Roberto has asked another couple of questions. So, um, so the uh, first one is, um, other than the, abyss the ability to listen to feedback, what else are you looking for in the founding team? And then he's just curious, you know, if you can sort of really pin down an example of when a business model pivot, to use the sort of the bingo, um, really made a massive difference. Uh, okay, well, on that last question, uh, ViewRanger is a good example of that because we did uh, we did pivot to a subscription model, um, and that what that made the significant difference to well, it, it essentially made the business profitable almost within six months, I guess. Um, wow. And we were probably too late. We should have moved to a subscription model earlier. Um, so, so that's a that's a good example. Um, the yeah the the first the first part of the question. Just help me again, Nick. The first part of the question. Uh, stay stay on that one for a bit, and I'll I'll feed you the first one again in just a second. But so I'm curious, what was the what was the business model before um, ViewRanger went to subscription? I can't. I mean, was I paying? Was I pay, just paying for downloads? No, so the, the business model initially was uh, was try and gain as many users in as many countries as possible. Right, right. So it was really just stickiness and building up the uh, the fan base, as it were. Mm. I mean, it, it, so it was quite different. This was going on at about the same time as SwiftKey was happening, and what was happening with with SwiftKey was that they realised, and this was a, this was also another interesting example of a of a pivot of the business model they wanted to be able to sell their application to a big OEM like Samsung or yeah. Apple or whoever it was because they wanted to be able to Apple to sell their phones with ViewRanger already on it. But to for two guys in a garage to go knocking on Samsung's door in Korea was, wasn't really on because they didn't really have any track record. So they thought, well, how do we become a B2B business? Well, we need to start off with a B2C application. So they designed their app, put it on, put it out there, and they sold it at that stage. People were selling for, I think it was $2.99. And uh, it, it became the number one app, paid app, in 65 countries throughout the world within 12 months. And of course, wow. then then the OEMs came knocking on the door of, of, of SwiftKey to say, well, we would like it embedded in our phone, and off they went. Yeah. So B2C to yeah. get to B2B. Really interesting. And the other question was, what else, apart from listening to feedback, um, what else are you looking for in the founding team? Yeah, so I think I think this whole COVID era has um, shown some great examples of leadership. So sometimes, uh, I, I think probably mentioned this to you before, there's a big difference between peacetime CEOs and wartime CEOs. And right. this period has been like a war, really, in, in the sense that it's an emergency. And... Um, some entrepreneurs have really stepped up and mm -hmm. you can see that they they really are the leader that you hope they would be and yeah. and some haven't some have you know some have retreated um with you know with a tail behind their back 
I think some of the key attributes have been really good communication, really open, transparent communication with their teams. Um, and the best companies have worked out how to communicate effectively with their teams remotely. Yeah. Uh, and they've, they've made sure that well-being is a really important part of that, that people right. do take a break. They don't sit on a Zoom or Microsoft team call all day. It doesn't do any of us any good. So they work that out. I think resilience is also very important. Um, but ultimately, it's about being a role model. It's leading from the front. Um, so those are some of the things I think that I've, you know, I've seen during this period. Really good. Um, thank you very much. Um, Simon, you've been incredibly generous this morning in giving us your time and your insight. I'd like to thank you uh, on behalf of everyone that's been listening. Thank you very much for your time. And um, um, that's it. We're going to wrap up now. So um, thank you, everybody, for listening today. I hope you found it useful and um, I hope you have a really good uh, wrap up to the year, whatever's happening for you in this weird revolutionary time. And um, look forward to the vaccine coming out and all of us getting back to something, uh, approaching, you know, stable business and confidence in the new year. And, um, um, you know, hope everyone has a good good break over Christmas and a chance to get your breath back. Thanks, Bye Nick.